This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Want to take a look at, we closed out the last hour talking about this study that's going to be done with 10,000 people looking for antibodies to the COVID-19. And uh, Dr. Nikhil Verma uh, sports medicine and shoulder expert for Midwest Orthopedics at Rushhead, the team physician for the Bulls and the White Sox, now joining us on the Schneider Orange Hotline. Doctor, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, glad you could make it. Um, this this is fascinating for so many different reasons. Now, uh, I tried to kind of explain the study coming up uh, to those that uh, are going to be tested to see if indeed they have the antibodies, if indeed they had COVID-19 without showing any symptoms of it. So give us the reason that there's an importance to this. So, you know, basically what's happening is we really don't have any idea of what the prevalence of this uh, virus or disease is in the general population, right? We've had glimpses of it. So, for example, the cruise ships have been one area where large numbers of patients have been tested, and we know that there are a number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic individuals. NBA has had a few teams that were tested in a similar manner. And so the question really becomes is how do we really know how many people have been exposed to coronavirus or have immunity to coronavirus and either had cold-like symptoms and didn't think it was really the virus or remained asymptomatic? And that's important as we start to think about, you know, what's the risk going forward? How do our uh, uh, health uh, department people start planning for opening up our economy and society and which people are thought to be immune going forward? So I, I guess is there is there a uh, – how do I put this? In reading the article, there is also the ability to, to see, like you had said, who has had it, who has built up the immunity to it. Does that then translate into a faster vac- vaccine along the way? No, it has really nothing to do with a vaccine. It's simply looking at, uh, number one, to understand what percentage of the population has already been exposed. Uh, and number two is to uh, potentially come up with a group of patients that have some, if not complete immunity to coronavirus. Now, that's a point that's still being debated in terms of even if you have the antibodies, does that mean that you're immune? Uh, but it really doesn't play into vaccine development per se. 
Um, so I guess the other aspect of this, when we talk about, you know, players and athletes and, and being a part of this study, uh, MLB wanted to climb on board right away with this. Uh, why was MLB so quick to jump in with both feet and say, yeah, we'd love to do this? So I think it's important to, to just make note that this wasn't done to try to test baseball players or in any way to try to get baseball back on board. Um, and there was no preferential treatment here for athletes. Really, if you think about it, if I'm a researcher and I want to do a national study, the hardest thing that I have to do is to overcome the logistics. Is how do I start to, if I'm in San Francisco, recruit patients in New York and, and uh, Chicago and Miami? And so that's where baseball was really a natural partner because using the team physicians of all of the baseball teams, we could now get access to physicians in all of these different metropolitan areas around the country and we had a group of, of quote-unquote, volunteers or subjects using baseball employees or uh, medical staff employees to begin to test. So it, it really is a very unique partnership where you take a researcher that wants to do a national study and partners with MLB to collaborate with MLB physicians and MLB staff to get the volunteers done. So this study, as you said, will enroll somewhere about 10,000 patients. The study was probably put together and executed over about two to three weeks. That's almost unheard of in terms of developing and executing a study of this size on a national basis. And that's why MLB was such a perfect vehicle to be able to, to get this done quickly and efficiently. For somebody who studies this and looks at this, uh, you work with patients, you work with athletes. Um, at what point, and, and I'm not asking for any kind of a, a layout because I know all the different governors and presidents and such all have different plans, but as a doctor, what point do you feel comfortable saying, yeah, I think we can move forward and start to kind of get back to a sense of normalcy? And normalcy is also very judgmental on depending on, you know, who you are and what your sense of normalcy is. But getting back to, to you know, like, like, you know, obviously in Chicago, as much as here in the area of, of Wisconsin, there's festivals, there's, you know, music festivals, there's church festivals. I mean, at, do we shy away from that for months and months and months, or do we have to wait for a dramatic slowdown, or is there a percentage to this? At what point do you just feel comfortable saying, you know what, I could probably venture back out? So there's a couple things that have to happen. Number one is this is going to uh, occur at different rates and different time periods uh, across the country, um, you know, based on the level of the disease burden as well as uh, the healthcare capacity. Uh, the first thing that has to happen is we've got to get through this, what we're calling mitigation phase, which means that we're just trying to avoid a surge phenomenon like we're seeing uh, in New York, where basically the number of patients are at or above the capacity of the healthcare system. So that's where most of us are in major metropolitans today. And what we really want to see is that we've peaked on the curve and are actually on the descending portion of the curve where we're seeing descending cases over a period of about 14 to 21 days. So that's what most people are using as the guideline to start relaxing social distancing. The second part of that, though, is as we start to come back into society, is how do we then uh, mitigate the risk of going back into a surge situation? And, and the really, that's where you go back to public health 101. And the way that we do that is by testing, uh, contact tracing, and quarantine. And so if you think about it, really what people are looking at is what's the chance that an infected individual transfers that infection to another individual? And when one person gives the infection to three, four, five people, that's when you start to see exponential growth and we get back into that situation where you're going to overwhelm the, overwhelm the healthcare system. What we need to do is to get that number under two and as close to one as possible. So one person infects one person, and that keeps the disease at a steady state. The way that you do that is by identifying the disease early, 
So you get those people out of populations uh, quickly. That means access to testing. So you've got a cough on your way to work. You say, wow, I'm not really sure. Is this coronavirus or not? You stop and get a test. Your test is negative. You go about your business. If your test is positive, you get taken out of society on day two of your infection rather than day five of your infection when you're severely ill. The second thing we do is say, okay, you had a positive. Let's go back and look at everybody that you contacted and test them. And so maybe two of the people you've contacted in the last two, uh, t- two days are positive. Now we take them out of society at a very early point. And so in doing that, you can really modify the risk of one person transmitting the disease to others. And that's true of whether we're talking about opening up the mall down the street or getting back into baseball. For baseball, we need to get to a situation where one person develops the disease on a team or in a clubhouse. We can test everybody else, figure out who has it, get those that are positive out of circulation, but the rest of the healthy individuals can continue to participate in in life. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Nikhil Verma, um, sports medicine and shoulder expert for Midwest Orthopedics at Rush Head, also team physician for the Chicago Bulls and the White Sox. So being so close to the White Sox, and I know baseball is is contemplating a plan of, of kind of bubbleizing the teams and then sending them to one location just to get baseball started again. That's a that's a monumental task to keep everybody segregated like that. Now, going by what it is you just stated, which is very well stated and laid out, um, is is there a likelihood to this? Uh, you know, I mean, I it, it seems like it's a, it's a lot of work to be able to just go and play a game. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, there's no question. And you know, when we think about it, like we all are thinking about, okay, the players need to stay healthy, but just remember the amount of people that it takes to put on a baseball game, regardless of whether you're going to have fans in the stadium or not. That you know, that's a secondary issue. You've got medical staffs, you've got the uh, food staff, you've got the security staff, you've got the uh, umpire staff. Uh, you know, you're talking about not just the 25 players or even 40 players if we allow a 40-man roster. You're talking about probably 150 to 200 people on each side of the equation, and not all of those people can be quarantined um, you know, to a hotel the way we can do with the players. So I go back to what I just said earlier, which is this is going to be no different in baseball than it is with you know, opening up your, your local restaurant or the place where you want to go have a drink after work. We need to have the basic principles of, of testing, testing with early results. So that's where this point-of-care test that you're hearing about where you go in, you get swabbed, they put it into a machine, and it tells you a positive or negative within about 5 to 15 minutes. If we have those and we have access to those, um, then I think we can start to put together a plan in order to play because then then you're not in a situation where if one person tests positive, the whole system shuts down because you've got to quarantine the entire organization for 14 days. It's uh, it's fascinating, and I know that they're trying to put tests together. As If I was reading correctly, there's a company that's manufacturing the tests, and they're trying to do – uh, a million or something to that effect uh, every couple of weeks to get these out. But they, there's only like one or two companies that even put these tests together at this point, correct? Yeah, so Abbott is the company that you're referring to that has the point yeah. of care testing, and they're hopeful to be up to, um, I think the number is a million per week uh, by sometime in June. But remember, you know, the, the testing, we all think, well, we need to test everybody in the U.S. That's actually not true, nor, nor is it plausible nor does it really solve the problem because you'd really need to test them, you know, every five to seven days to find out who's positive. You just need to be able to have access to testing so that somebody in an early stage of the disease can find out if they have it or not, and then who they've been around if they have it or not, get those people out of the circulation. And that's the way you, you, you're never going to eliminate it, but you're going to mitigate it to the point where we don't see the surge like we've seen elsewhere that just creates this 
huge problem where we have to go into lockdown situations to protect ourselves and protect the healthcare system. Now, one more question before I let you go, and that is the uh, the belief that as the warmer weather gets here, that we're going to start to see this subside. Um, is that mythology, or is there a, a truth to that, or do we just not know yet? Uh, I think it's up in the air. I think there's some encouraging data when you look at warm weather environments already in other parts of the world, Southeast Asia, for example, versus cold weather environments. There has been some uh, indications that maybe the disease prevalence in the warm weather environments is less. Um, and then just like the flu, obviously, there's also the factor that we may not see people as crowded into small spaces as we do in the winter. So there's a couple of different factors here. I don't think it's going to be a quote-unquote solution, uh, but I, I, I certainly think it's going to be a benefit as we get to the warm weather situation and people are outsides where risk of transmission is much less than in a closed or confined area. So it's certainly there is some optimism, I think, in that regard. And, and I'm sorry, I know I'm late. I, I do have one more question. You mentioned the larger cities that have the inundation of the healthcare system. Uh, I do listen to what's going on in New York State. I know in Rhode Island they're having uh, increasing issues. I know in New Jersey they had issues. Uh, at what point do they say, okay, as far as those major metropolitan cities, do they start to ring the, not necessarily the all clear, but the, okay, we can breathe now when you don't have people stacked up in, in waiting rooms that are actually being treated? Um, how far away are we? Do you, do you know at all how far away are we from having those cities go, okay, now we're out from under the, the, the blanket that was, was smothering us? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to predict, obviously. I know that uh, some of the national models are scheduled to be updated today with uh, predictions. I think what they're seeing in New York is that they've uh, experienced a leveling, which means they're at the peak. But I think one of the things that's somewhat concerning is it seems that they're staying more at a plateau rather than seeing the rapid drop in infection levels. So what you really are going to need to see is that uh, you have a sustained drop day over day in infection levels that is present for 14 to 21 days. And then you're just going to have to look closely at the capacity of your healthcare system to make sure that you've really got uh, enough uh, volume within the system or available volume in the system so that if we do see a small bump or secondary surge as we start to relax, that we can still handle that without getting to the point where we were, you know, three, two weeks ago with people waiting in the hallways. So I think we're well, still going to be about a week or so away before we can really get some concrete estimates about timelines. Well, I, I thank you for coming on. It's always a wealth of information. I certainly appreciate it. All the work that you guys are doing and all the frontline workers in this. Thanks so much for joining us for a couple of minutes and taking time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. There you go. Dr. Nikhil Verma, uh, sports medicine and uh, shoulder expert for Midwest Orthopedics at Rushhead and then team physician for the Bulls and the White Sox is going to be involved in this study. And again, back-to-back days in which we have a doctor on that says hearsay. And, and, and I want to expound upon some of the things that he had said. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that coming up in the next segment as well. We'll kind of lead that into some of the Bulls discussion also. But uh, there was a couple of things there that I took uh, away from that interview that were absolutely positively fascinating. And I think that should uh, maybe direct your thinking when it comes to the state of which uh, we are in right now. Hang in there. we got a lot more of the Bill Michael Show. He joined us on the Schneider Orange Hotline. Schneider hiring drivers right now. You work hard, they treat you fair. 80-plus years, they've been getting it done. Call them at 844 to Go to schneiderjobs.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.